In his uh, classic book, Christ and Culture, uh, writer Richard Niebuhr spoke of a a many-sided debate being carried on in our time. Especially, he said, between the advocates for a Christian civilization and the non-Christian defenders of a wholly, entirely secularized society, calling, for instance, for the elimination of religion from public education or for the Christian support. Oh, you can go. There, you follow Ariel out. She'll take you. That's right. Your mom is just getting changed. So, or for the, or for the Christian support of, of so-called anti-Christian political movements. And Niebuhr said, so many voices are heard, so many confidence, confident but diverse assertions are being made, so many issues are raised that bewilderment and uncertainty beset many Christians. I think it is helpful to recall how the, that the question of how Christians should live in the world, how they should relate to their culture, is by no means a new one, but a, an enduring one across the ages. It is also helpful to be aware that within the Christian tradition, there has been no single answer or response to that question. The relationship between our faith in the world or relationship between our faith and our culture is too complex for a a one-size-fits-all approach. And to illustrate this within the Bible, I often draw attention to the presence and work of three contemporary Old Testament prophets, Daniel Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They all were prophets of God at almost exactly the same time, but one, Daniel, was working for the empire that had captured him. He's as a civil servant in Babylon. Ezekiel, at the other end, it says that he was, he had his visions when he was in among the exiles. He was basically in the refugee camp. He might have thought, I'd rather have Daniel's job. Or he might have thought, maybe it's better to be with the refugees because there's a lot of tricky decisions. And Jeremiah was prophesying in the court of Israel, God's people who were going downhill and disobedient to God further and further. He spends time there. He also gets uh, taken for a while into Egypt with exiles. But three prophets at the same time, and if you had looked, how should you be relating to the world or to culture? It is very diverse, and yet they were all servants of God at the same time. And so clearly the relationship between our faith and our culture requires more than one approach. Faith stands in opposition to some elements of culture. Ask Daniel and his friends. They experienced that at some very key points in Babylon. It's also supportive of some elements. We could, if we could interview Joseph in Egypt, he would say, I was working hand in hand with Pharaoh of that time for the good of people because of the famine, coming famine. Faith is detached sometimes. God sent the Israelites who were being assimilated into the culture of the Canaanite culture. He sent them to Egypt in the land of Goshen, Shepherds separated away, and so they were detached for a time from the culture around them. And it also, at times, faith seeks to transform the culture. If we turn to the New Testament, uh, Acts 19, 
We discover there that as people are becoming Christians in Ephesus, many of them have been involved in witchcraft and sorcery, and they have a massive book burning. And books weren't cheap in that day. And it has a huge impact. And then also, they began to get rid of their idols, and the market on idols began to plummet. It had a transformative economic impact, and a riot ensues. But it just illustrates that faith, it often, it stands towards culture changes over time as the culture also changes. So Joseph, he's working in alignment with Pharaoh in Egypt. And then Moses arises, and this Pharaoh, he is in direct opposition to God and his ways. Yet I believe the overall biblical vision is clear that God wants us to have a public faith for the common good. A public faith for the common good. It is this vision and two popular but misguided alternatives to it that I want to explore in the time that we have this morning. I'm kind of doing an in-between sermon this morning. That is, we finished up our Galatians series. I'm going to be starting a new series next week called Divine Signposts in Our Everyday World. And this is kind of like a mini preview of what I, some of the things I hope to cover in fall. So, um, it is impossible to choose just one text, but if I had to choose just one that clearly expresses, I think, this vision of a public faith for the common good, it would be the letter that God told Jeremiah to write and send to his people who had been exiled in Babylon. And so I invite you to turn to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, I'm just going to read verses 4 to 9 and then make a few comments on that. So this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And he will go on. But I just want to just pull out a couple. Note, firstly, you can just turn the next slide. The word shalom... In Hebrew, it means wholeness, flourishing, peace. It's used three times in verse 7. Seek the shalom, and it means peace and prosperity. So it covers both of those aspects. To the city that I've carried you. Which city is this? It's not Jerusalem. It's the pagan city. And they're thinking, this is a message from the Lord. And he says, yes, and he also says, pray to the Lord for it. Because if it experiences shalom, you too will experience shalom. It's very interesting because the false prophets, when the threat of of exile was coming, the false false prophets said, oh, peace, peace, it's going to be good, God's got us covered. It was a false peace. 
And yet Jeremiah says, now you're going to be in exile, not in God's land and where the temple is and God's holy city. You're going to be in a pagan city. And you know what God's message for you is? Peace. Shalom. Thinking Regan, you're going to be across the country studying there. Yeah, but God goes with you. Shalom absolutely can be there. I think that's what Jeremiah. And so this is, but notice that it, within this text, there is an alternate visions that he is up against. Just as we are, uh, and I think his message is really bloom where you're planted. God's goal is for you to be a blessing. In contrast to one of the alternate visions then and now is a private faith for my personal good instead of a public faith for the common good. And the growing cultural dissonance that many Christians experience today between our faith and our culture, I think makes us particularly vulnerable to this temptation to privatize our faith. And usually that takes two forms that it can take. One is we assimilate into the culture because we're keeping our faith private, or we isolate into a Christian bubble. See, the temptation to assimilate is essentially a temptation to compromise on the essentials or public aspects of my faith in order to fit in with the dominant culture. Two well-documented patterns are trying to blur the difference, minimize the difficult beliefs, doctrines, or practices, or try to adopt or baptize, if you will, central cultural practices. You know, everybody's doing these. If I do these, I'll kind of fit in socially, ethically, uh, economically. And biblical Israel fell into this pattern of assimilation at various times in their history. As early as Lot, when he was moved right into into Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Israel in the time of Judges, we looked at that uh, the other year. Solomon's intermarriage and alliance with the pagan nations. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 17 describes religious syncretism, this melding together, as a major reason why Israel went into exile. God said they imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And Ezekiel, you have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Paul will say, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Liberal Christianity often has minimized or abandoned the miraculous, for example. The uniqueness and divinity of Christ, conversion, etc. It's abandoned those to fit into the culture. There's examples. Until there's nothing distinctively Christian left. But conservative Christianity has often decried some social practices, but has tended to assimilate to the individualism. The consumerism, the prosperity trends in the culture. We even have, you know, the prosperity gospel. What a contradiction in terms. And there's a private-public split often in contemporary life. Uh, You know, a a sacred-secular divide. So, well, I'm a Christian on Sunday, and the other six days a week, I just, the way the market operates, that's how I go. And my faith has very little influence. That's an example There's also another alternate vision, Uh, a political faith for my group's good, a political faith. In sharp contrast to the privatization of faith, some Christians believe that faithful followers must become very public and get political with their faith. 
Recognizing the loss of Christian dominance in, in our country, people can fight the good fight, fight, which then gets defined in, in religious political battle, and combat, and they combat all that is clearly an ex- that isn't clearly and exclusively Christian. Uh, the total saturation of public life with a single religion was basically the form that Christianity took when it became the state religion under Constantine, uh, under Emperor Constantine in, in 325 AD. I think it was one of the temptations that Satan used with Jesus and which Jesus refused. Use political power to establish God's kingdom. And Jesus said no. Now, the most extreme forms of the politicization of faith have been what Miroslav Volf calls religious totalitarianism. Forced conversions in Christian history, the Crusades. We see Islamic forms of this at work, of course, in our day as well. For some, this is the ghost that haunts discussions of the the public role of religion. It's kind of the fallout from Christianity and the ties to colonialism, right? And there are also not only uh, religious, but also secular versions of this approach in the public arena. A political faith for my group's good. Uh, Excluding religious values or banning religious practices. You know, you're not allowed to wear a, a hijab or a turban or a religious symbol you know, if you're working for us, or refusing to give students a place to pray in a public school, even if it's on their time, uh, there's some of those movements happening. There's also ideological colonialism. It's a common belief that the age of colonialism is past, but there's another kind of colonialism that people like uh, Pope Francis, for example, are warning us about. Ideological colonialism. That is the imposing of beliefs, certain beliefs or ideologies. And it's often coming from the West. It comes from different areas. These beliefs are presented as progress. We're always getting better, right? Not. And they're imposed then on other countries, cultures, and regions in the name of development. And there's a whole list of new unpardonable sins. They're not called sins, but there is a public shaming that happens, silencing and canceling that happens to those who dare commit one of the um, unpardonable sins, like refusing to celebrate what we are celebrating this month or other examples. I believe that the Bible calls us, as I said earlier, to neither a privatized faith nor a politicized faith, but a public faith for the common good. And what do I mean when I say that our faith should be public? I mean we should all have a t-shirt that says, I follow Jesus. No, right? Or we should all have a, a fish symbol on our car. A fish symbol, by the way, used to be in Greek, it was called ichthus, was what the word for fish is. And each of those five letters in the Greek, Jesus, Son of God, Savior, they all basically told the gospel in five simple ways. That's what the fish symbol is. Now, what I mean is that we should be willing to go public with our faith. I was talking uh, Yosef this week. 
And uh, he told me a story about uh, when he had a car and when he became a Christian, he had on his car, he put a fish stick, you know, uh, one of those icons or whatever on, on his car. And then he, his, a friend borrowed the car. And after the car came back, the fish was gone. Now, I don't know, I, I thought of it, I don't have a fish on my car because my Christian, my Christian faith hasn't quite applied enough to my driving yet. To, to, uh... <laughs> so I don't know if that was the issue, but there was something, you know, I don't know, you know, but it, didn't want to go public that I'm, you know, I'm a Christian here behind the wheel. I want to keep that hidden. <laughs> well, we saw baptism this morning is a very important step in our faith journey. Because we are publicly identifying with Jesus and with the family of God. Right? And Jesus was absolutely clear about the importance and cost of our association with him in daily life. In Mark 8, verse 38, for example, he said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. Jesus described his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 as salt and light. And he said, a light, you know, you put it on a stand so everybody can see it. You don't cover it up. You have to be willing to go public. And God, already in the Old Testament, you know where he put Israel? Right in the middle of all the superpowers of the day. Egypt to the south, uh, Assyrians and Babylonians and the Medes and Persians to the north or that area, and Israel right in the middle. And he says in, in Isaiah, I, I want you to be a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to all the earth. Jesus wasn't picking up on a new idea. He was just drawing out what God's goal had always been. A public faith is a willingness to go public, but it is also an embodied faith. It is something that is lived out in daily life and cannot be confined to private places and spaces, though our world tells us it should be. We cannot simply check our faith at the door when we go to class or to work or into a meeting. In writing to the Corinthian church who had confined their faith largely to the sidelines in a number of areas, And they had adopted the ways of the world, uh, its sexual immorality of it. They were suing each other in court. Uh, They were attending celebrations and parties at pagan temples that they shouldn't have been. You know, they had sidelined their faith and said, oh yeah, we can keep on doing these things. And Paul calls them to remember, you were bought at a price. The cross. Jesus gave himself for us. Remember, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Indeed, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, he will say later on in 1 Corinthians 10, do it all for the glory of God. A public faith is a faith that seeks to follow Jesus and imitate him in all the business of life. So who are we the other six days of the week. It's interesting, I thought about Paul's counsel when he says choose elders. He has their Christian character, but he also says says you should also note their reputation with outsiders. What do those who aren't Christians, who know them, work with them, neighbors, what do they say about them? 
When I was on sabbatical, uh, well, not that long ago, it seems that long ago already now, but one of the churches that we were visiting, uh, one of the, pre- the preacher was Kenny. Kenny was from Nigeria. And he was uh, talking about taking the public transportation there uh, called Danfo. Danfo? Danfo, yes, okay. And to work. And so he was taking it to, this man was taking it to work. And how it works there is you show up, you get on the bus, and you pay your fare, and you sit down if there's still a seat. And then it, it doesn't leave until the bus is full. When it's full, then it's time to leave, okay? So he had done that. He got on, paid the fare, sat down, waited. Eventually, uh, the bus and the conductor is there. The conductor kind of hangs outside the bus. Is it? Yeah. And, uh, and he takes that. When you come in, he gets the fare, and he, he says when it's ready to go. Well, this man was on the bus. They had traveled to his destination. We went to get off. The conductor said, nope, pay me the fare. And the man said, I already paid you the fare when I got on. No, you didn't pay me the fare. Pay me the fare. And some of the other people even said, no, we saw him pay the fare. And the conductor slapped the man across the face and said, pay me the fare. Now, the shocking thing was that this conductor was really a young lad, a young boy, I mean, a teenager. And the man he slapped was a big man. And the people... And as, he, and as that happened, this man, big man, he just began to cry. And the people around him said, what are you doing? Why don't you slap him back? And he said, I want to. But the hands that would have hit him have been hands that have been crucified with Christ. You see, a citizen of God's kingdom seeks to live by the words and example of Jesus who loved his enemies and did good to those who persecuted him. This is not easy, but it is impactful. A number of weeks ago, at the end of, at the end of May, we heard Jackie DeCroon's story of forgiveness as well. Powerful, right? And it is a public faith that is also for the common good. Jeremiah said, see, God said through Jeremiah, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you. God, when he first called Abraham, he says, yes, I'm going to bless you, but I want, and I'm going to make your name great, but you will be a blessing, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Joseph in Egypt, he'd been sent there as a slave by his brothers, but he had come to see that ultimately he said, it was God who sent me ahead of you, that is you brothers. And he made me Lord of Egypt in order not just to save your lives, but to save many lives. Already, God had given Abraham that vision to be a blessing to all people, and by the end of Genesis, his great-grandson, great-great-grandson, great, one of those, okay, Joseph is already embodying that. A public faith for the common good will often have political implications. Uh, Eagle Ridge Bible Fellowship, just before I came, a couple years before I came, there was a a movement to uh, especially mobilizing the churches to help with the homeless in the community. And the goal was that they would be able to be housed for a month at a time overnight, and so they had to have public consultations. And I am told it got quite political. 
There were some who, some who thought, not in my backyard. This is going to just create problems in the neighborhood. And things got political. I remember also uh, in South Delta when we were living there, and all of the migrant workers began to come to work in the greenhouses. But they were bussed in from a housing you know, in, in Vancouver, and they weren't able to live in the community. And so we ended up saying, they should be able to live in the community like with us, and then we can get to know them much more. It got political. And not everyone will think that what we are doing is for the common good. <laughs> they are not. Working to protect the lives of the refugees or for the unborn or to uphold God's design for marriage. Some will think that is the opposite of good. But the common good is defined by God who calls us to love our neighbors like he does. This should always be our aim, personally and corporately. Just a few concluding questions to think about, I think, for application. If Eagle Ridge Bible Fellowship ceased to exist as a community of faith, would the community be poor for it? Would they say, we have lost something? Would we be missed? Or if the churches in the Tri-Cities ceased to exist, would we be missed? Or if you, as a Christian, moved across the country, moved to a different workplace or city or school, would your presence be missed? I remember uh, years ago, I got to know uh, a fellow. Henry also got baptized when he was uh, retired already. But I, he said one of the influences along his journey was he used to work in an auto body shop. And uh, he said there was a guy there, he became a Christian. And boy, did we give him a hard time, he said. Every opportunity we had. And after two years, he said, I think the guy thought he was making no difference and we just bugged him, and he left, went somewhere else. And he said it was like a light went out in our workplace. We didn't realize what we had until he left. This week, uh, I was also talking to Yosef. We were just talking some of biblical examples of people who, who practice a public faith for the common good. And he said to Daniel, you know, Daniel, someone came up, there's a monument to Daniel still today in Iran where Daniel is buried. They have made a monument because this, he was not Persian, but he worked for the good of the Persian people. Joseph in Egypt also did that. But Joseph said, when I die and when God takes you out of this land, take my bones and bury them in the homeland. Daniel never said that. He identified his burial place is in Iran. It's still an influence today. That is striking to me about that. A legacy. Maybe God's challenge to you is seeing people go public with their faith today for you to go public with yours and to go into the waters of baptism. I would love to talk to you about that. We're saying, come and join us in the river. 
Or maybe God is saying, I want you to, to be willing to go public in your workplace or in your class or whatever it is. I want to invite the worship team to come up, and as they're coming, let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you went so public with your faith. You, you set the standard of what it means to follow, to embody the kingdom of God. You said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. You told stories, but then you lived it. You demonstrated it. And then you, you invite us to be your children, your family, to be your disciples, to carry on your work, to establish the kingdom of God. Lord, you said to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Lord, may we follow your example. May we have your heart for our city, for the people in our neighborhoods, Lord Jesus, that you have, that we may seek, Lord, the common good in the ways that you call us to personally and, Lord, corporately. May we be willing to go public with our faith as you lead and guide us for your glory and the good of our world. Amen.